Hello, everybody. My name is Neon Felicity, um, and I'm going to be giving a talk called Who DJs the DJs? Uh, curation as Meta Art. So, uh, hope you guys are ready to do some philosophy. Because um, philosophy is an activity, not a, not a subject area. And doing philosophy is the act of loving wisdom. And to love wisdom is to aspire to truth and goodness. Philosophy has two legs, art and science, on which it walks through time. Art grounds philosophy in the human experience so we can learn what's good. And science grounds it in observable facts so we can learn what's true. Art is subjective and science is objective. Art is synthetic and science is analytical. Art is expressionist and science is impressionist. Art is a rea reality enhancement system because it renders the world malleable. You know how they say art is not a mirror to re reflect reality, but a hammer with which we shape it? Science is that mirror. That is the relationship between art and science. Philosophy is essential to human existence because it's the love of wisdom that connects the mirror and the hammer. Only through philosophy can art and science communicate with each other. The original university, Plato's Academy, was all about philosophy. That's why they called it a university, because it was to study the universe and everything in it holistically. And then epistemology splintered off discipline by discipline until philosophy became the dusty abstraction most people think of it as today. I studied philosophy at university and I loved it, but I hated how foreign philosophical concepts seemed to most people who weren't, quote, philosophy majors. And it always frustrated me how phenomenally misled about fundamental truths so many people are. But like seriously, most people really believe some total bullshit, like vehemently. And noticing how wrong most people are about the important aspects of reality made me wonder how the fuck that happened. As an anti-theist, I blamed most of the problem on religion. It's the fucking church, man, I would always say. But then in 2011, when Cenk Uygur got kicked off of MSNBC for going too hard against the establishment, for drone bombings, mass incarceration, legalized bribery, and lots of other things, uh, I started thinking a lot more critically about the implications of Fortune 500 corporations owning all the mainstream media outlets. Most of us know about the conglomeration of the media, but probably haven't appreciated the scope of its impact. Luckily, Jenk had his own independent online news network called the Young Turks when he got kicked off the TV. Because that was when I discovered the epic, all-you-can-eat intellectual buffet that is YouTube. I've been obsessed with contemplative underground hip-hop since high school. Because mainstream hip-hop tends to be lyrically vapid. Uh, with few exceptions, obviously. But, but when I discovered YouTube, I realized that it was like underground punditry, underground news media, and underground documentaries with the same relationship to the mainstream as in hip-hop. Without the corporate gatekeepers choosing who gets to speak, there's a huge spectrum of quality, from pathetic disasters to sublime felicity. But crucially, it is not the sublime felicity that gets chosen by the corporate gatekeepers for presentation to the public. But rather the, con but, but, but rather the content is chosen for suitability in the sophisticated propaganda machine they've been running to preserve the old neoliberal paradigm. So five years after the awakening prompted by my trip down the YouTube rabbit hole, I created my website to promote ideas and artists that deserve more attention than they're getting. 
I've found so much amazing stuff that almost nobody knows about, as you probably have too. And there's so much garbage that's so popular. So I want people to think about how that garbage got there. Who put it there and why? Because it's definitely not an accident. One of the greatest quotes of all time is when Bucky Fuller said, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. I apply this logic to education in the entertainment media. It seems to me that It seems to me that elevating the visibility of culture that teaches the values of the new paradigm is a more powerful strategy than merely deconstructing the all-too-visible culture of the old paradigm. I have dubbed these two halves of the project of the ideological revolution, the nihilistic imperative and the educational imperative. Each half is necessary but not sufficient to move the zeitgeist. As much as chemistry involves both anabolic and catabolic processes, and indeed the entire cosmos is but a dance of creation and destruction, the work of evolving culture requires both breaking down the old ideas and building up the new ones. My favorite metaphor, and maybe the ultimate metaphor, is between the physical world and the virtual world. And by virtual, I simply mean the artificial simulation of the physical world we construct inside our minds. Art is short for artificial. As Chuck D says, art is not life. Art is a facsimile of life. Art is the externalization is Art is the externalization of our mental models of the world for communication across space and time. And just as physical reality is made of different, is made of different scales of interacting elements, virtual reality is also fractal nature. Think of biology. Atoms combine to form molecules, which combine to form macromolecules, which combine to form cells, which combine to form tissues, which combine to form organs, which combine to form organ systems which combine to form organisms, which combine to form populations, which combine to form communities, which combine to form ecosystems, which combine to form biospheres. The relationship between the creation and curation of art, remember short for artificial, the facsimile of life, is similarly stepwise by orders of magnitude. Take music, for example. Ones and zeros, or physiological motion, if you want to be analog about it, but we're at a base party, so I think you guys know what I mean. But bits combine to form sound waves, which combine to form musical notes, which combine to form chords, which combine to form riffs, which combine to form songs, which combine to form performances, which combine to form festivals, which combine to form scenes, which combine to form societies, which combine to form civilizations. Each of these layers of meaning adds value to the overall existence of the art at the layers below it while being impossible without those layer lower layers. Just like the hierarchy of organization in biology. A DJ cannot perform without songs, but he's adding value to those songs by creatively selecting and arranging them. Just like how a cat cannot live without her organs, but she is more valuable than her organs are each individually. This is called synergy when the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And the contextual presentation of any work of art has a huge influence on how that work of art is received, and is often a necessary part of it even being received at all. Gary Vaynerchuk says, content is still king, but context is God. What we call creativity is a matter of taking the same building blocks we're, we're all presented with, both in idea space and in meat space, 
and arranging them in novel ways. In the same way that writers don't individually invent most of the words they use, and, and musicians don't individually invent most of the sounds they use, and chefs don't individually invent most of the ingredients they use, and painters don't individually invent most of the colors they use. You get the point. But there's a copyright for creative selection and arrangement. And since 1989, everything is co immediately copyrighted by default. So every playlist you've ever cr created is technically your intellectual property. Even though, this, even though the songs themselves are the intellectual property of other people, usually imaginary corporate persons. With a system of exclusive private ownership over ideas like the one we have in late capitalism, you can see how convoluted it can get when you try to actually pick apart what art is ontologically. Intellectual property is the most important immediate political issue facing our emerging cybernetic civilization. But for the sake of staying on topic, I'll save that conversation for another workshop. But for now, I just wanted you to keep it in mind while I'm talking about all this other stuff. Because I think when we appreciate the fractal nature of art that I just broke down, we'll be able to see that no individual can legitimately claim exclusive ownership over any cultural artifact. Because culture itself is a collective enterprise. We use tools invented by others to curate pre-existing elements of culture into the production of new works of art, which then serve as the composite elements of someone else's new works of art. <laughs> if cultural movements are like patches of blooming flowers, then we creative people participating in those movements are the pollinators. While we nourish our minds by ingesting bits of the various artworks growing around the movement, we carry remnants of the flowers we have previously tasted over to each next flower. This is why di diversity is as important for cultural evolution as it is for biological evolution. Cross-pollination from wide-ranging sources contributes to the symphonic harmony of the community and the ecosystem as a whole. This is why intellectual property laws are counterproductive if we want to encourage innovation in culture. Because the use of someone else's ideas or art in the creation of new ideas and art is the foundation of all progress. We stand on the shoulders of giants by curating elements of their work in our minds and essentially remixing them inside our biocomputer and then rematerializing them again mixed with other ideas in the creation of a new form. fascinating topic that I'll mostly say for another workshop, but I just wanted to mention, is cultural appropriation. This might be the most, con most contentious issue in the scene right now, as far as I can tell. And at the heart of it is two of my favorite subjects, curation and intellectual property. To appropriate a meme is to curate it without proper, appro proper, proper approval from its supposed owners. For example, many people argue that because yoga is a Hindu practice, People in the West doing yoga is problematic if they don't identify as Hindus, because they are therefore appropriating Hindu culture. I argue that it is important to realize that ideas are just ideas. Art is just art. 
No one can legitimately claim exclusive rights to practice any particular aesthetic tradition. For any person or group to try to censor everyone else's use of any aesthetic form is not only futile, but it's an anti-communitarian, separatist instinct which seeks to keep people divided by preventing cultural intercourse. By saying these people over here get to curate these memes, but not these, and, and these people over here get to curate these memes, but not these. It's one of those issues, like atheism versus religion, piracy versus copyright, science versus free will, communism versus capitalism, anarchism versus oligarchy, that tends to make both sides really upset, because the implications of the debate going the wrong way are seen by both sides as a grave danger to civilization. In the case of appropriation versus separatism, people are afraid that the sanctity of their traditions will be lost if, they are free, if, if people are free to curate their cherished means out of context. Established aesthetic practices usually contain lots of esoteric symbolism, from decades and centuries of being curated, curated over and over again in certain ritualized contexts. So when those same ritualized aesthetic practices are curated outside the sanctified context of the ritual, people who have ideologically identified with the sanctity of the rituals become offended. The power of this experience people have of being offended demonstrates, demonstrates one dimension of the, of the significance of curation and culture. Memes have value because they carry intersubjective meaning. And that's why, for example, right-wingers say that gay people getting married will degrade the sanctity of marriage itself. Bullshit. <laughs> because sanctity in, in general is a purely made-up phenomenon. So it's totally subjective. And since they personally hate gay people, they experience the idea of gay people getting married as toxic to the holiness they attribute to a cultural practice they treasure. So even though marriage has always been simply a legal contract for the king to manage our romantic lives, some people feel like they own it as a cultural practice and are therefore offended when the other curates it. In many cases, curators have more social power than the original creators of the work they curate. <laughs> sorry, this is my first time doing anything like this, so... No, it's dope. Don't be sorry. Thank you. example, the most influential person at a newspaper is the editor-in-chief, because she gets to decide what articles are ultimately included in the publication, and therefore what information the audience gets access to. The most influential person at a TV station is the program director, because she gets to decide which programming will be sent out over the airwaves. Individual pundits and writers have the power to choose their words but they cannot guarantee their words will be read or heard by anyone. That is up to the curators, in including amateurs on social media. Gary Vaynerchuk says that social media provided the plumbing for word of mouth. Word of mouth is a classic small-scale form of casual curation. The fact that we now have a global infrastructure to amplify our word of mouth curation is precisely the reason the internet gives us the unprecedented opportunity to democratize culture itself and thereby ultimately to transform the ideological orientation of the whole entire world.
traditionally the word curator was only used to refer to people who ran brick and mortar museums and art galleries. Then other professionals started using the term in libraries, bookstores, record stores and labels, uh, TV stations and elsewhere. And over the past decade, the title of curator has been appropriated by netizens to describe our management of content on the web, much to the chagrin of the hoity-toity museum community. Hoity-toity. Say it one more time. Fuck the bourgeoisie. Say it one more time. Fuck the bourgeoisie. Is that what you mean? I want you to say, say it again. It used to be about selection and arrangement of physical else, objects, but with the virtualization like culture, Carl, the role of curator now includes the selection Tina, and arrangement of and digital objects as well. This is my specialty. I curate music, video, graphics, and books, all in digital like form. form. I like this much Tina. better than working with physical objects, because in cyberspace, <laughs> access is infinitely scaled. Any number of people can access my site simultaneously from anywhere in the world. Digital objects also have the added virtue of being able to be in multiple places at once. This is what this has led to what I call the death of genres as exclusive categories. So all the various styles within each medium can now sort of bleed into each other and curate or appropriate elements from each other's traditions. I guess, that's, I, I guess that's what we might call a melting pot. You're welcome. When separatism finally loses the battle and history gives nope. way to integration, endosymbiotically generating whole new higher species with more advanced sophistication and therefore greater consciousness. Obvious curators are DJs, right? It's almost in the title. The, per the performance they create is consists of jockeying discs of previously created and recorded audible artworks. But even a band playing a show of exclusively their own songs that they wrote is doing as much curating as they are creating. Think about it. The performance itself is the thing being created, but the songs which constitute the content of the performance, aside from any unrehearsed jamming, is being curated from the artist's repertoire. So it's important to understand that performance artists who practice their routine or, or even create a set list of which pieces to perform in what order are in fact curating their own artwork at the same time as they're creating a new version of it in the moment. So you guys know the word for that? Because it's super important. Repertoire. Repertoire describes the, the, the collection of previously created work a performer is able to curate when they perform. I looked it up a while ago when I realized I didn't know what an A&R was and found out that it stands for Artists and Repertoire. A&Rs are, are the people at record labels that basically tell the artists what people want them to sound like. So if you're upset about the homogenization of the radio, which is a thing, just look it up on Wikipedia, the, the homogenization of the radio. Blame corporate capitalism. Because the major record labels all employ A&Rs to shape artists into representatives of the 20th century industrial paradigm we are so desperately trying to evolve beyond. Rock stars are not born, they're made. Yeah. Usually by a corporation to sell clothes or alcohol or whatever. 
always to market neoliberal ideology itself. Just think about Drake, or any other rapper who worships the almighty dollar. Throughout the entire history, history of humanity, social engineers have used stories to encode behavior patterns into the people of the society. Narrative, narrative is absolutely paramount to civilization, because human consciousness is inherently mythological. We evolved in the plains of Africa telling campfire stories. In fact, that's likely how language emerged in the first place. The essence of human cognition is metaphorical, because the big picture is far too complex for any of us to perceive directly. So clever storytellers throughout the ages have created metaphorical myths to help us all make sense of the world. But it's important to note that the creation of these stories is a necessary but not, su a necessary but not sufficient condition for social engineering. Many great stories have been told which did not have the impact on the world one might expect from the nature of the story alone. Therefore, the key factor in determining the ultimate impact of a story is in the retelling of it. So, cr so creation and curation are both equally essential to culture, to the transmission of values and the proliferation of ideas. Just like how biological evolution requires organisms to both survive and reproduce, cultural evolution requires ideas to be both created and curated. This investigation into where ideas come from is both simpler and more complex than most people realize. Because, but it must be a scientific inquiry. I guess it's the next conversation beyond the one about humans lacking a supernaturally independent and free will, where we then must explore the big question of consciousness. The answer, the, the answer to which regards ontological design, the feedback loop between the creator and the created. It's Marshall McLuhan's famous aphorism that we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us. And curation is a social engineering technique which, like all other technology, can be used for utopian and dystopian purposes. An obvious example of this is the juxtaposition of festivals like this with clear channel radio stations, which have now been rebranded as iHeartRadio. Because too many people were wising up to the homogenization of the radio after the Telecommunications Act of 1996 allowed Clear Channel to gobble up the vast majority of the terrestrial radio stations. There are two distinct functions of propaganda. The obvious is the direct suggestion of ideas, either promoting or attacking, or attacking particular means. The other is what magicians call the art of misdirection, a sleight of hand tactic to distract the audience from perceiving the technique of a trick. So a lot of the garbage we hear on the radio and see on TV is primarily a distraction from important issues, which then produces the cumulative effect of reorienting, reorienting people's priorities away from even caring about the things that really matter. Everybody needs to understand that the vast majority of our education occurs outside the formal context of school. In fact, for better or worse, it mainly occurs through entertainment media. And the entertainment media is never morally neutral. It necessarily has ideological content because it always presents a worldview. That's why Percy Shelley was spot on in 1821 when he wrote that poets are, the poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. And the oligarchs know this. So over the past 200 years, they've deliberately acquired the channels of mass communication whereby this, whereby this ideological education of the population takes place to preemptively quell even the potential threat of abolitionist insurgency against plutocratic rule. In a seminal book titled Propaganda, which I'm sure many of you have heard of, uh, Freud's nephew, Eddie Bernays, lays out their logic behind the media matrix this way. The conscious, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses 
is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, suggested largely by men we have never heard of. We are governed, oh wait, I'm sorry. Uh, this is a logical result of the, way that, of the way in which our democratic society is organized. Vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner if they are to live in a smoothly functioning society. End quote. By a smoothly functioning society, he means one with capitalism's class antagonisms, but without a revolutionary proletariat. For capitalism to survive, even the weak sauce nominally representative so-called democracy we have in the United States, the proletariat must be persuaded that the monetary system is in our own best interests. Otherwise, the uprising Marx prophesied is inevitable, as the working class just gets fucked harder and harder until we wake up to the fact that it doesn't have to be this way. A lot of why so many people still believe in free will is simply ignorance. Not only of the basic premises of science or the emerging discoveries in neuroscience, but of the sheer power of the of the propaganda machine to hack into our individual cognitive and motivational systems. They say pay no mind to the man behind the curtain so, they so that you'll forget that your life is being dictated to you by your culture. That's why I'm, me I'm a media, media nutritionist, an information dietitian, a propaganda analyst. I'm obsessed with the ideological influence wielded by the creators and distributed of, artificial, or of cultural art effects. I find that relationship fascinating between the artificial, wor artificial world of, of culture and the organic world of biology. It is both ontologically the essence of metaphor and phenomenologically the most important recursive relationship on the planet because we are literally living in the Anthropocene where human activity is the most consequential set of processes determining the course of the biosphere. Another hero of mine, Jason Silva, talks about the importance of curating your own, inf your own information diet. There's so much information out there to grapple with now, and increasingly so, that we must be intentional about intentional about what what we put input into our minds. I've heard a few thinkers make a powerful analogy to fast food. 
To get at the insight from evolutionary psychology that we evolved in harsh conditions where food was scarce. So now that technology has brought us into a world where food is abundant, we're having difficulty adapting to living healthily in this plentiful environment. The same is true for information. Before the age of mechanical reproduction, everything from news to music to books to images used to be very scarce. So most people pretty much had to settle with whatever the priest class gave them. But now there's 300 hours of video being uploaded to YouTube every minute, and similarly overwhelming numbers of abundance in every other digital medium. The problem then is about quality. Because let's face it, most art sucks. The overwhelming majority of the artwork humanity produces is absolute rubbish. A major, major premise of my website is that most music of every single genre, most talks, most movies, most TV shows, most books, are pure mind-numbing num mind drivel. Uh, this is especially clear in hip-hop, for example. Most rappers are so awful that it's an utter waste of time to listen to them. Fortunately, uh, fortunately for my audience, I've, I've dedicated my life to being a highly selective filter for these things. Quality control is the essential task of the gardener in a, in a world of hyper-democratized, hyper cybernetically abundant digital media. So a big argument for the free culture movement is mashups, right? Like, no reasonable person would dispute that Girl Talk's music has leg legitimate artistic merit, but nonetheless it's still illegal. Mashups are illegal art. Girl Talk uses components of hundreds of songs in each uses components of hundreds of different songs in each one of his songs. So it would literally cost millions of dollars if he paid out royalties to all those rights holders. Most of whom are multi-billion dollar multinational corporations who barely pay taxes anyway. There's a great documentary you gotta watch if you haven't yet, called Everything is a Remix. I believe that principle is really true about all aspects of culture. So in that sense, the acts of creation, the acts of creation and curation are inseparable, because curation is is an inherently inherently creative act, and most human creativity involves cultural elements that not wholly originated ex nihilo in the movement. And people always talk about the Illuminati in the music industry. Uh, as if the artists themselves are deliberately corrupting our culture. But that theory is oblivious to the role of curation. People who think that Katy Perry herself is evil need to remember that the musicians themselves are not the people who decide what gets played on the radio. Nor are they, are they the people who decide who gets a marketing budget, or who plays at what festivals and concerts. This is why I titled my talk, Who DJs the DJs? To draw attention to the man behind the curtain who is making those decisions. For all of what we call his story, it has been rich old men making all those decisions, with rare exceptions in just the past century. So the propaganda curated to the, curated to the masses has functioned to preserve the status quo power structure, particularly patriarchy, imperialism, white supremacy, and recently, capitalism. The inherently unethical, unjust, and therefore ultimately unsustainable nature of that status quo is the reason why the act of social engineering known as curation was put behind that curtain in the first place. That's why they call it the invisible hand, so that you don't look closer at it to see who's really in charge here. But with the internet, we can open source our curatorial projects. And that's why I love the word apocalypse, the lifting of the veil, the light of Lucifer, which destroys illegitimate and, oppre and oppressive social constructs, like the music industry.
and the, and the lobbying arm of the music industry is called the Recording Industries Association of America. The RIAA claims there's $7 billion missing from the music industry. But they only count the revenue of the three major record labels. So there's, a, and so there's actually more money being made from music right now than ever before. It's just not all going to those major labels anymore. But what they're more worried about than the, their, than the loss of revenue is their loss of control over the narrative. Because the shareholders and executives have more money than they could ever need. But the perilous state of the old greed is good narrative is what keeps them up at night. <laughs> That's why anything that undermines or disrupts that paradigm gets marginalized and labeled underground. That's where the term underground hip-hop comes from. Artists who reject offers to sell their souls to devils in suits for a distribution deal. Poetic Death has a great line where he says, and I've been spinning long enough to know that the underground is the truth. And the, and the most important aspect of the punk movement, too, from the beginning was that DIY, e that DIY ethos. The original punks were so dissatisfied with the culture that was being curated for society by corporations. So they started... So they started making their own music and graphics and literature and fashion and food in revolt against the mainstream cookie-cutter cookie culture the masses were being fed. And this dynamic is still playing out today. The punks in the 70s were living that spirit of rebellion, even to the point that they didn't mind how shitty their music sounded. In fact, the poor quality of the original DIY culture was a crucial part of its mystique. John Robb says something like, and it didn't matter that the music sounded so bad. What mattered that was that it was ours. I argue that the reason the DIY movement is in a whole new phase now, with the potential to supersede corporate culture that it didn't have before, is that now the technology to create and curate high-fidelity, high-quality culture is now in the hands of individual people, especially us poor folks without access to studio spaces or specialized recording equipment. Around the same time the punk movement was emerging, so were hip-hop and rave culture. Hip-hop and raving both shared a lot of that same DIY ethos with punk. But the invention of the turntables by Gra Grandmaster Flash introduced a new element of curation into the mix. He, cho he chose to never patent it, though, so that the kids from the hood could learn, to de learn how to DJ to keep them out of trouble. The turntable gave people a chance to create mus musical performances without training, formal training in music. Just a high level of emotional intelligence, which kids in the streets have in droves. These DIY artists were then able to use elements from the pre-existing corporate manufactured culture as raw materials in the creation of something totally new. Nowadays, most DJs probably have certain music blogs they frequent to find new music. So to producers, being featured on popular music blogs is, an essential, is essential to getting their music played in public by other DJs. So the curators of those, of those music blogs are playing an essential intermediary role in getting the music from creation at somebody's house to curation in a party setting. And with all the diversity of music on the internet, I find it morally reprehensible for DJs at conscious festivals to sample misogynistic trap lyrics in their sets. Because it's totally unnecessary. There's so much profound and enlightening profound and enlightening local content in hip-hop from the from the past decade or two. I see no excuse for curating hip-hop with guttural and, and degrading lyrics. Hip-hop music, like everything else, has both a higher self and a lower self. My favorite, ar my favorite artist, Kalki, likes to say, a tongue is a double-edged sword. 
It can be a weapon, but it can also heal. We must use these capacities for the right purposes, to tear down oppression and build up empowerment, rather than the other way around. MCs carried the torch of the griots from ancient African oral tradition. Griots memorized epic poetry containing the myths of the culture and went around reciting stories to audiences wherever they went. They weren't, they weren't creating those stories, but they were curating them from the hundreds of thousands of stories in their repertoire. If it weren't for, if it weren't for these oral curators, the stories they retold would have been forgotten. Just like how on the internet you can make a meme, but if nobody shares or reposts it, no one will see it. And with the advent of writing, those loose collections of myths were codified into specific ideological systems. And religion as we know it emerged from this calcification of myths into creeds. Religions each paint a, paint a particular image of the world by curating stories. They select and omit and arrange individual narratives in order to construct a meta-narrative meta about what the world is and how about what the world is and how it works and what our place is within it. When they canonize their sacred texts or deliver liturgy by selecting passages from those sacred texts, they create and enforce ideology by curating anecdotes with which teach various values and assumptions. An example of the power of this would be the exclusion of the Gnostic Gospels from the Catholic Bible. Early Christianity was split into Gnostic and Orthodox cults. The Orthodox cults were more conducive to fascist imperialism, so Emperor Constantine deployed the Roman army to assist the Orthodox clerics in annihilating all traces of the Gnostic teachings and officially created the Roman Universal Church, also known as the Catholic Church. I believe the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD was the single most important event in Western history because it was the most powerful act of curation to ever take place. The Council of Nicaea set forth the creed of Christianity, the set of memes which drove more imperial expansionism than any other in history. So it wasn't the crucifixion that defined Christianity, but the Council of Nicaea, where, where Constantine's cronies canonized the Bible. This committee, this committee of Roman aristocrats curated the Bible 300 years after Jesus' execution. And why did they feel the need to do this? It's obvious, right? To control the narrative. To ensure the stories being regurgitated by priests and reinforced orthodox beliefs which benefited the state. but I'll try to skip through as much as I can in five minutes. My theory is that, the, is that they knew the Roman Empire would soon collapse under its own weight because the lack of communication at a distance that we now enjoy limited the size of any explicit empire. So they designed Christianity to be a vehicle by which they could conquer and control the world remotely. You know that Wheezy line where he says, okay, you're a goon, but what's a goon to a goblin? Well, the, Ro the paid Roman soldiers were goons, but a jealous and vengeful omniscient Santa Claus figure is a goblin. Constantine and his advisors understood that the pen is mightier than the sword, so putting a policeman inside people's heads would save them the hassle of even having to quell natural <coughs> popular uprisings. 
People are taught bullshit now for the same reason people have been taught bullshit all throughout history. Because knowledge is power, so the ruling class keeps it for themselves. This insight was crucial to the thinking of Niccolò Machiavelli, maybe the most important philosopher of the second millennium. He fastidiously studied the classics, like most Renaissance speakers, but he was the one who instructed the Medici, who had recently taken over the Vatican, to allow Martin Luther to initiate the Protestant Reformation. Machiavelli's first treatise, The Prince, is an instruction manual for acquiring and maintaining an empire. He wrote it towards the end of the so-called Dark Ages, when brown people controlled Europe, so white folks were desperate to regain their dominance in the game of empire. His thesis was that you must give people the illusion of freedom to prevent inter to prevent insurrection. <laughs> but in actuality, you must run the place like a tyrant, or you'll be conquered by an invading empire. This is the fundamental logic behind the U.S. Constitution. Constitutional government is the recreation of theocratic religion with money in place of Yahweh. The Founding Fathers had a hundred years of Enlightenment philosophy to choose from in laying out the U.S. Constitution. There are a lot of revolutionary, revolutionary ideas circulating at the time, but which were not selected for inclusion in the Constitution because they were either too openly authoritarian or too effectively emancipatory. The Founding Fathers did own slaves, after all, so they had to design a text which sounded like it was about freedom without disrupting their free labor situation. You can think about curation as like the opposite of censorship. Censorship is about preventing ideas from getting attention, like when the military makes the evidence of its atrocious human rights violations classified, because the Freedom of Information Act requires us to know what documents we want to see, but we don't even know what documents there are to see. Curation is about enabling cert certain ideas to get attention, like marketing, but for concepts rather than commodities. And to keep with the military example for a moment, think about WikiLeaks. Julian Assange and his team curate secret information acquired by whistleblowers and hacktivists. I find it ironic how everyone in the mainstream press laments the death of investigative journalism, but then Julian Assange becomes public enemy number one when he releases the official documents those lazy reporters were failing to investigate. I guess it's just that it, I guess that just illustrates that it's not really about laziness, but it's about fear of the powerful and trepidation about even doing real journalism at all. If journalism is publishing something that somebody somewhere doesn't want published. Thank you to uh,